All right, everybody, welcome to the tentatively named podcast with myself, Michael Navarro, Juan Schroth, and our very first guest, very excited to have you here, Sohili, lean, mean, psychology studying, macro killing machine, Sohili. That's mm. brilliant. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this like, man, I need to introduce her in a really good way. <laughs> That's probably one of the best intros I've heard in a while. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Look at that. I'm we already have points. That. That's awesome. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Um, so you just want to go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're about. Sure. Um, so my name is Sohi Lee. I'm 27 years old. I guess I would consider myself a fitness coach. I'm a blogger. I work primarily with women. Um, right now it's just online because I'm pursuing my master's degree in psychology at the ASU West campus. Uh, I just finished my first year, so I've got one year to go. Um, I go Devils. Am, yeah. Right. And I'm primarily interested in the psychology of eating behavior as it relates to long term weight loss maintenance. So I want to know not only how we can lose weight, but also how we can keep it off over the long haul. Because if you think about it, that's what we struggle with, especially in America. We're really good at losing weight. We're also really good at yo-yo dieting and we're terrible at keeping the weight off. So um this is a whole backstory to this, but long story short, I became interested in the psychology of eating when I realized that even if we have the knowledge for you know what the best nutrition program is, even if we know what to do, we have a really hard time applying those behaviors on a consistent basis. And a few years ago, that's when I realized that the behavioral psychological aspect was something that we didn't talk about enough in the fitness industry. And a lot of people were just saying, well, here's the optimal training program. Here's the optimal nutrition program. Um, if you just try hard enough, then you'll get to where you want to be. But I'm coming to learn that just try harder is actually really not very helpful advice. And it's not useful. It doesn't help people uh, actually change their behaviors for good. So um, right now, I, I just finished writing a book called Eat, Live, Thrive, which is my brand slogan. It's uh, you know learning how to eat well, learning how to train, especially for women, and how to maintain a high quality of life at the same time. Because I think a lot of people, what happens is that when they become, uh, when they start on their fitness journeys, they become so um, obsessed with working out and eating a certain way that they uh, let their relationships, their social life, all of that kind of uh, goes down the gutter. And they don't even consider the fact that the whole reason why people start with fitness in the first place is to actually you know, they say well, they want to look better, feel better, et cetera, but ultimately they want to increase their quality of life. Um, and they lose sight of that along the way. So my whole goal is to bring that back, is to encourage women to lift weights the right way, um, is to embrace, you know, not be afraid of squatting, deadlifting, hip thrusting, and so on. And also to um, make, well, I have it in my bio, I say one of my missions is to make science cool. And that learn, get, yeah, get people to learn how to value science or at least take a more evidence-based approach with the way that they um, eat and train and exercise and so on. Absolutely. That's awesome. So I'm going to go back to um, kind of your book a little bit and talk sure. about that. So uh, what are some things that you have found to be successful when trying to get women into the weight room and kind of get that gym intimidation uh, away from them? Because I know for a lot of people, that's a big barrier. It's just they're intimidated by the gym and all the big, you know, grunting people in there. Sure. Well, the first thing I'll say is that I think it's very much still the prevalent myth that women should not lift heavy weights, otherwise 
they'll get bulky. And I, yeah. this is something I have to remind myself a lot of times, as, you know, especially when I talk to my colleagues, is that a lot of times, if this is what you live and breathe, if, if this is my career, you know, I used to be a personal training before, a boot camp instructor, et cetera. This is the stuff I think about all day long. And when we talk to our colleagues, we forget that we are in the minority and the vast majority of people, the general population, they don't know what a dumbbell, when you say pick up the dumbbell, they don't even know what implement that is in the gym. When you say, what are your macros? They don't know what those are. And so um, catering really to the, I would, I, I want to say beginner level, uh, but you know, it's just, it's just the down to the level that the average layperson can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing it down to that level, making fitness not so intimidating, readily accessible is really important. So getting people into the gym, I think social media is a really, really powerful platform to yeah. accomplish that. And Absolutely. you know, I think there's a lot of good that comes out of social media. There's also some bad. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, if you follow the right people and uh, you, you see, for example, you follow different women online who are all about lifting weights, who aren't afraid to get in the gym and get under the barbell and squat and do all those things. Um, what I found is that, for me anyway, people follow me for several months for long enough and then they realize she's been lifting weights for nine and a half years and she's not bulky. bulky. And you know, so it's, a, it's I think it's a combination of, of showing, so being a role model, showing that you live this lifestyle, but also every now and then presenting them with information. Okay, here's what I look like now, here's what I've been doing to get this look. And a lot of people will realize, well, I thought to get tone, you had to do X, Y, and Z. You had to pick, you know, stick to only the pink dumbbells, do tons of cardio and do this. But she's doing the opposite. But, and I'm gonna read her caption to see what she says about that. And over time, they become a little more open-minded, they become curious, and then eventually they'll venture into the weight room, or maybe they'll even try stuff at home on their own. Maybe they get on the floor and start doing some glute bridges or Mm -hmm. stuff like that, and then over time that builds confidence and courage, and then maybe they might hire a personal trainer or hire an online coach, and then that's when their journeys take off. But um, I found that trying to force people to change does not really work. Uh, For me, I kind of think of it more as showing the way that I live my life and kind of coaxing them to join me along the way. And that's been a really good way to, you know, not come off so elitist or condescending and um, shed lifting weights and fitness in a really positive light. Yeah. You're just, you're just going by example and then you're letting them kind of come to their own decision whether they want to follow along. Join me whenever you're ready, but here's what I'm doing. Here are my exact workouts. Here's, here are the weights that I use. There's probably more than you would think you would, you should lift, and um, here's the results that I get over time. Yeah, and that's the cool thing too about lifting is that uh, once you do start to, and especially if you're a beginner, once you do start to build up strength and get stronger, you realize like, wow, I'd never realized that I could, you know, squat like 100 pounds or sure, yeah, pounds yeah. Just seeing the numbers increase, um, and it, once again, if you're a beginner, those numbers are going to jump up real quick, and so just yeah. seeing that increase, I think, can be very motivating, and so. Uh, and I mean, there's so many other just different uh, benefits to exercise other than the body composition mm-hmm. changes um, that I don't, you know, everybody should be doing it just because it, and especially women, since um, it improves their bone health. And, you know, it, a lot of women um, do suffer from like osteoporosis when they're older. And sure, yeah. weight training is just one way to kind of stave off those effects. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people uh, initially start lifting weights or working out with the sole purpose of looking better. Mm-hmm. 
And along the way, they find that, oh, I'm actually, I'm a lot stronger and I can do these things around the house on my own now, which I couldn't do before. I can walk up a flight of stairs without getting winded. I can haul all my groceries back into my home from my car without needing extra help. These things uh, really help to build a lot of confidence and independence. And it's really empowering, especially for women. And I think that one of the best things that a woman can work toward and eventually accomplish is a body weight pull up. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, women. For men, that's a very impressive thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, for even a bodyweight squat or a bodyweight deadlift or even, you know, 10 strict push-ups from the floor, those are really um, tangible goals to strive for that, especially for women doing pull-ups, not many women can do that. Um, not because yeah. they just can't, but we just necessarily have uh, weaker relative upper body strength compared to men. And we have to work a lot harder to build that upper body strength. Um, but when we do get the first pull-up, it's pretty badass, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I got my first muscle-up, and I felt like the strongest, coolest person in the world. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And also, just another thing for men and women out there, um, I know Sohi talked on this a little bit already, but it's, you know, once you do pick up a weight, you're not going to just get insanely huge just in, like, five I wish minutes. that were the case. Yeah. Honestly, that if, that were, nice. <laughs> yeah, if, I, if that were the case, I would be, like, Ronnie Coleman or Jay Cutler because I've been totally. training for, like, 10 years. Yeah. So it's not that easy. You're not just going to get insanely huge really quick. So. Right, and the women... Um, when you talk to a lot of people, you, you, you get a pretty good idea of what misconceptions are out there. And one of the most prevalent myths that I've heard is that, well, if I, here, I, last year I tried lifting weights and I did get bulky. So obviously it's not for me, but if you take a scientific approach to, to lifting weights, you got to remember that correlation does not equal causation. And a lot of times what happens when people start lifting weights is that they overestimate their calorie expenditure and then they end up eating way more calories than they normally do. So what happens is they're building muscle, but they're also putting on a bunch of body fat over it. And the excess calorie intake is what leads to the bulky look. If you were to be smart about your nutrition and keep a close eye on what you're eating, you would not get bulky. Um, and I, I said this just the other week. In my past, you know, nine and a half years of lifting, I've come across maybe four or five women total who actually are amongst the gen genetically elite who actually do get bulky if they lift too much and too heavy. But they are the rare, rare, rare exception. They are the rare exception. The vast majority of women will never even get close to looking bulky if they are smart about their nutrition. So you're saying is, um, for the most part, is women who are getting bulky is because they overestimate their calories. They're overeating along. They're lifting weights and overeating. To reiterate, it's the excess calories that are going to get you that bulky look or just get you to gain weight. Yeah. Not the not the type of food that you're eating. You can definitely uh, gain body weight and body fat on chicken, rice, mm -hmm. and even vegetables. Yeah. It's going to be hard, but you can <laughs> you definitely can really do it. try yeah. it hard. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But it's absolutely possible. Sure. So with that, Sohi, in mind, um, do you want to talk a little bit about, I know you probably talk about this on every podcast, but um, flexible dieting yeah. mm -hmm. and uh, just kind of the myth about clean versus bad Sure. Foods. Okay. So there are so many myths surrounding what flexible dieting is and is not. And um, I see this online where people who consider themselves clean eaters, they bash they bash flexible dieting and they say, okay, I'm going to do flexible dieting for a week and I'm going to show you what happens. And then for the whole week, all I do is eat junk food all day long. They eat, you know, thousands and thousands of calories. And then at the end of the week, they've obviously put on several pounds. They don't look as good. They've gained body fat. And then they say, see, this is proof that flexible dieting doesn't work. But that's not what flexible dieting is. I like to tell people that flexible dieting 
um, it's kind of a misnomer because it's not actually a diet. It's not a specific diet where no, yeah. here are yeah. the rules, here's what you can eat, here's what you can't. It's a mindset. So, um, you know what's really cool about flexible dieting is that the it actually stems from scientific literature, and in 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 the research they call it um, flexible control versus rigid control, dietary restraint. Yeah. And uh, there are numerous studies at this point showing that uh, flexible dieting is about you take a more graduated approach toward nutrition and dieting in general. You don't see foods as good or bad. There are no foods off limits. Um, but so th- there, th- the main difference is I would say portion control, moderation in general, whereas clean eaters or, um, those with rigid dietary restraint, they're the ones who see things in black and white. So these are the foods that are, that I'm allowed to eat. These are all the foods that I'm not allowed to eat. If I, if I eat these foods off my approved foods list, then they feel extreme guilt um, they feel like they've broken some arbitrary rule. And they actually also have higher BMI, uh, higher incidence of binge eating, higher mood disturbances, higher anxiety. And uh, in general, it's just not a good long-term strategy. And flexible dieting has been shown to be um, a more predictive of long-term weight loss. And um, my prediction for this is that flexible dieting provides psychological relief that you can't get with clean eating. Um, if it were the case that we never got cravings for cookies, chips, ice cream, then there would be no need for a flexible dieting to ever exist. Yeah. But, but because we are wired to crave salty, fatty, sugary foods, we need to find Delicious. a compromise. Yeah. We need to find a compromise and this is the way to do it. So the mindset of, okay, there are no, I know there are no foods off limits, but I know that I should probably prioritize nutrient dense foods, have broccoli, chicken, rice, potatoes as most of my calories, but I can also save a little bit of room every day if I want to, to have a small scoop of ice cream and, uh, my overall calories will still be kept in check and I can still make progress toward, uh, my fat loss goal, my muscle gain goal, whatever it is without derailing myself. So that's the main difference. There's no specific food you have to eat. A lot of people think that you have to eat Pop-Tarts or cookies as a flexible dieter. There's nothing that you have to eat. It's if I choose to eat this, it's because I've made that decision for myself, not because I'm following some set of rules. Absolutely, I agree. And just for me, I personally love Pop-Tarts, so I do eat Pop-Tarts. Yeah, I think Pop-Tarts has become the mascot of flexible dieting, which is why it gets thrown around the Mm -hmm. most. Um, So I was listening to... um, uh, one of your your very own podcasts, and you, uh, I believe you use the term um, inclusive. Um, yes, inclusive. Eating. Yep, that's another so that's, inclusive that's, versus exclusive yeah, so dieting. that's that's um that's what you used to refer to as flexible sure, dieting. Yep. And 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 um, what really the benefits of that is, like you said, it um it kind of takes away the anxiety that comes um with eating food. So I just wanted to ask you how how important is it to have um that good relationship with food where you're not anxious about you know eating a pop tart or like um getting a slice of pizza or going out with your friends even though you're in prep you know and having a drink every now and then i think from a quality of life and a happiness standpoint it's crucial um that's not to say it's easy to achieve and especially people who maybe 15 years ago when when cleaning kind of first exploded when it's all the rage um you kind of fall into that mindset of oh these are clean foods and these are I mean, what's the opposite of clean? Dirty. So if something's not clean, then it's dirty, right? Uh, so it to, to, once you've adopted that mindset, I always say it's really hard to unlearn something, unlearn a behavior, unlearn a thought process. 
So to move away from that is pretty challenging. And I, you know, I went through it. A lot of people, other people have, have gone through it, but you realize that, you know, I've never had a, I've never known a clean eater become a flexible dieter and then say, oh no, I want to be a clean eater now, actually. <laughs> Turns out that was a better <laughs> life for me. I've never, but the opposite happens all the time. You know, yeah. they go from cleaning to flexible dieting and then they never go back. Yeah. Um, because they realize that there's no reason to fear any food, any food. And you realize you're in complete control. You have the power to decide, do I want to eat this cookie or not? Just because I'm at a party doesn't mean I have to eat everything that's in sight. Just because I don't have the protein sources that I may want for this meal doesn't mean that I can't control how much my my calorie intake for the meal. Mm -hmm. um, so you realize there's a lot more f you can get away with. Um, you can be a lot more flexible than you would have ever thought. And you won't blow up overnight. You won't lose all your progress without having to, you know, eat squeaky clean, quote unquote, foods. And you can have a lot more fun in the process. Yes. So if you can eat foods you like and get to where you want to be, why would you want any other lifestyle? Um, but I think for a lot of people who are stuck in the cleaning mindset, they they are there because they are afraid to let go of control of every single thing that they eat. And it doesn't intuitively uh, click with them that added sugar is not inherently fattening. You hear that, everybody? It's not inherently It's a fattening. trust issue. And uh, for people who ask, and I get this question pretty frequently, how do you even make that transition? How do you know? You just got to practice. It's kind of like um, the anal analogy I use is learning how to ride a bike. It's really scary at first. You feel uncomfortable, vulnerable, you want to stay, you want to keep your training wheels on because that's what's safe for you. But you got to keep practicing. You're going to fall off right now and then you're going to scrape your knees. But if you keep it up, eventually it'll start feeling more and more natural to you and you'll gain confidence and gain trust. And then all of a sudden you'll be a flexible dieting pro. So when you say trust, you're talking about trust in, in your own in kind yourself. of self-control. Yeah, in your own behavior, in okay. your own ability to uh, stop at just one cookie rather than feeling helpless to, and then eating, inhaling the whole entire plate, which happens pretty often in a lot of uh, cleaners, binge eating is very, 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 uh, it's a very common occurrence. Mm -hmm. So trusting that you can have half a serving of fries, not finish the rest and survive the night and be okay the next day because there's a, you know, yeah. it, it, it sounds funny, but there are people who have this irrational fear that they have to finish, they have to finish everything that's on their plate. If they have a giant slice of cake in front of them, they have to finish all of it. They can't just stop at four bites and be done. So learning to, uh, trust that you can be in, in tune with your own um, hunger and satiety cues. Pay attention to that. Stop when you're moderately full, not when the food's all gone. Those are skills that you learn over time with repeated practice. And with somebody who's um who's been clean, who's doing the follow the clean eating for um for the longest time, how do you transition them from the clean eating to the flexible dieting? Because like you mentioned earlier, um, people like to have control. And it's it's for them it's control of okay those foods are bad those foods are good. Um, how do you transition them from that to something like flexible dieting where it can be a little bit you know scary to them because it's hard to accept that there are no bad foods. Like I can have a Snickers bar that's not a bad food when we've been made to believe that there are bad foods and that sugar is bad that fat is bad etc. Well, they're not gonna trust it completely unless they try it out for themselves and until they're willing to do that, there's not much that I can do. So at this point, when I have clients come to me, um, usually I don't take them on until unless they're already familiar with my work and um, 
you know, usually I recommend that they've been following me for at least several months to get a good idea of, and that's enough time to, for them to slowly change their minds and realize that, okay, maybe if I eat this one cookie, I'll be fine tomorrow. And, um, but I really, I, I kind of think of it as a form of exposure therapy in a way. Let's say you have a, like a fear, irrational fear of snakes or something like that. Then what you might do in therapy is over time, you slowly expose yourself to not like a, you don't like fall into a pit of snakes or anything, <laughs> but over time you might, you know, gradually work on, um, you work your way up to the pit of snakes. Sure. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> maybe never the pit of snakes, but even just like one snake or something like that. Yeah. yeah. But, um, one of my, one of my colleagues, Jill Coleman, one tool that she uses that uh, I don't use specifically with my clients, but I like the gist of it was she used the, I think she called it the one fry technique where every time she goes out to eat, she doesn't necessarily order fries, but whoever she's with, if they order fries, she'll just eat one fry off their plate. Just one fry every time, one fry, one fry. And over time you realize, oh, that didn't do anything to me. It didn't hurt me. My physique looks exactly the same. And um, over time you're like, okay, maybe I can have two, maybe I can three. So something like that can really help a lot too. But for me, as a coach, what I found is sometimes just some, simply saying, okay, here's your carb allotment. Um, here's your maybe junk food allotment, so to speak. Maybe you know 20% of your total calories can come from junk food. And just giving them permission to do that can be life-changing for them. So instead of saying, so they're saying, okay, now I'm, I have hired this coach who is telling me to consume, let's just say like 220 grams of carbs per day, which is triple what I used to eat before. And I am skeptical, I am afraid, I'm nervous, but I see her other clients eating these fun treats every day and they seem to be perfectly happy. So there must be something to it. So usually all it takes for me is two to four weeks of them adhering to my program. And then they find that they've actually, this had just happened with a new client of mine. Her first check-in with me, she's dropped weight. Her waist measurement has gone down a full inch after tripling her carb intake. And uh, she had a s'mores over the Memorial Day weekend, which That's she amazing. would never have allowed herself to do. And she's, you know, she's dropping body fat. So sometimes that's all it takes for them to be like, oh my God, I'm living this now. And all my fears, none of them came through. None of them came true. So then, then they're like, okay, now I want to try doing this fun thing that I, you know, for the past maybe 10 years, I didn't even allow, allow myself to do. And then they slowly kind of um, tiptoe their way into the flexible dieting open waters. Mm -hmm. And then within, you know, a month or two, they're, they're full converts, so to speak. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about uh, flexible dieting is that really once you do, um, like you said, kind of put your foot in the water of flexible dieting, it's really easy to make that transition, I believe, um, and to really kind of take your life back. Because I feel like a lot of people like are really slaves to the food that they eat right. and the diets that they get. Right. And, you know, like you said, social media can be a good thing, can be a bad thing, but um, a lot of people, you know, they just get severely influenced by social media and it just kind of ruins them. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's unfortunate, but once again, once you do get in flexible dieting, you're really able to take your life back and, uh, just be a much happier person. And I can speak from personal experience cause I, you know, I had a, kind of a binge eating disorder for a little while. Um, and then I started using avatar and kind of doing my own thing and it's been amazing. It's felt so much better. Um, unless Jay, do you have any questions? But I kind of want to shift gears a little bit towards uh, your eating disorder, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah, I would just um. Well, the takeaway message that I'm kind of getting from you, Sohi, is that um, with flexible dieting, it it, it helps people develop a, a better relationship with food. Yes, 
Yes, but the one thing I will say is that, you know, within flexible dieting, you've got intuitive eating and you've got macro tracking, tracking macros. So macro tracking just means that you are um, weighing and tracking your food, usually using a nutrition app of some sort like MyFitnessPal or MyMacrosPlus with the goal of adhering to specific prescribed uh, macronutrient numbers that you've set. So certain specific grams of protein, carbs, and fats per day that you are to hit. So that approach, um, I think it's it's been life-changing for a lot of people, but there also is the chance that you can still develop an eating disorder from, yeah. just, you know, orthorexia is a real thing. It's when you have, you know, an, an unhealthy, uh, it's kind of ironic, an unhealthy obsession with eating healthy, um, where you're such a stickler to meeting your macros for the day and weighing everything down to the gram that you don't let yourself have fun uh, you don't let yourself go to social events. And that was me back, back in 2008. I remember we were trying to go on a family trip to Bali, and I tried to get out of the vacation because I didn't want to deviate from my meal plan. Oh, wow. um, and looking back, it just makes me cringe because it's really sad when you get to that point and you don't, see, you, you don't realize that um, you're missing out on life because of it. So that's orthorexia. But um, I think that flexible dieting in general can be really good, really good for people. Um, if you've had a history of anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, um, they can just that mindset shift can be absolutely key. Um, but you were, you want to know about my eating disorder history? Yeah. So just talk a little bit about it. Walk us through um, kind of you know how it started and kind of how you got out of yeah, it. Yeah. How you get over it? Because um, from well, what I know is that you kind of develop it during um, was it during your your college years when mm, you were prepping for mm, your first show? No, I was before it was I was fourteen years old. I was, uh, you know, I grew up in a culture where everyone comments on the way that you look. They comment on your physique. The first thing they do when they say haven't seen you in a while well, is well that. is <laughs> oh you've gained weight. Oh you've lost weight. Yeah. It's it's always that's their first comment, yeah. and usually it's oh you've gotten so skinny therefore you look so much prettier there was always that pairing that skinnier is prettier and or if you're not if you're if you're not skinny it's like and and they see you like you haven't been eating enough <laughs> sure right and and, and <laughs> So there was this idea that the skinnier you are, the prettier you are, the more popular you are, the happier you are. So uh, once middle school hit, I th it kind of became the norm for everyone, for all the girls anyway, to be always on a diet. And for me, I just, um, I just started skipping lunch one day on a whim, and I started dropping weight. It was my first time dieting ever. And you know, when you drop weight, you start getting the comments and the compliments from people, and that kind of feed you feed into that. And it you kind of become hooked on the feedback. So over the course of about a year, I gradually ate less and less and less and less and less until, and I was slowly increasing my exercise. And, you know, I was really uh, very athletic as a kid. I did a lot of sports and because it was fun. And then I slowly over time, I realized that I was no longer doing it for fun. I was doing it to burn calories. So all of a sudden I was exercising for three, four hours a day, doing tons of cardio and eating as little as possible. And this is back when I didn't know the first thing about nutrition. Um, I always cite that movie Mean Girls where they say, is butter a carb? <laughs> I legitimately did not know if butter was a carb or not. I did not understand what calories were. I did not understand that lettuce was virtually calorie free, whereas something like rice was a lot more calorie dense. Yeah. I didn't know any of those things. So my goal was just to eat as little of anything as possible. Um, I would, on a Friday night, I was in eighth grade, mind you, on a Friday night, I would get off the school bus, I signed up for a gym right next to my home, 
and I would uh, bike and run for three hours and come home and lie to my parents that I had just gone to go hang out with my friends for a little bit. And that's how I spent a lot of my life. And um, I remember I ran into, after I'd lost 10 pounds or so already, I was, uh, I started at 100 pounds already. So I was already pretty small. I was 5'2". And I still am 5'2". <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should just say, I'm still 5'2". Um, a huge growth spurt. I know. Yeah. I ran into a friend's mother who saw me, hadn't seen me in several months, was so excited to see that I lost weight, was going, was just gushing about how how much prettier I look. And then she said, oh, but you know what? You'd look even prettier if you dropped five more pounds. Wow. And that, to me, I was floored. You know, I was 14 years old. I could not believe. She thought I still was not enough. Wow. And then the throughout the course of the next summer, I think I dropped another 15, 10 to 15 pounds or so because of that one remark. And it got to the point where I would go like three days without eating anything. I would run uh, 15 miles a day. I was doing 5,000 sit-ups and 300 push-ups per day on top of that. And I had, I was actually doing so many sit-ups that I actually um, had like a rug burn on my tailbone. Just the skin had completely just peeled off and I didn't even care. Um, so, but I was binging every three days because obviously I was starving myself. So then I'd, you know, binge and purge and then just rinse and repeat for a while. And uh, I eventually lost my personality. I had, I isolated myself from my friends. Um, I became a robot is what a friend told me later. I became a robot with, I was just a shell and, uh, took me out. You know, I was really fortunate in that. I kind of came, I had a, my own wake up call without needing an intervention. A few months later, I just woke up one day. I realized that I spent all my days dreading my w- upcoming workout, um, hating my exercise, being envious of anyone who could eat a donut and like laugh into their donut without feeling extreme <laughs> guilt. I didn't know how that was possible and have a social life. Um, and I realized that I just didn't want to feel this way anymore. This was not the life that I lived. I thought it would make me happy, and yet it had made me more uh, miserable than ever. So I started slowly eating a little bit more and putting the weight back on. And it's not to say that everything was uh, fine after that. I struggled with binge eating for several years after that. And then, um, you know, I discovered in 2008, so four years later, I had just turned 18. I was a senior in high school. I discovered weightlifting. Um, I didn't know at the time that it was something that women did. And for me, it was as simple as seeing an oxygen magazine cover at the grocery store. And I don't remember who was on the cover, but it was a fitness model who, you know, looked feminine, but athletic and lean, had muscles, but looked great. And I just fell in love with the look. I didn't, that was the first time I'd realized that you could look that way as a woman without having to be a professional athlete, without having to spend your entire day working out. So that's when I started devouring all the information I could on on lifting weights. That's when I learned about macronutrients, protein, chicken, complex carbs, all those things. And uh, from there, I became a clean eater, quote unquote, uh, started following meal plans. And basically, I didn't realize that I went from anorexic and bulimic to bulimic, to binge eating, to orthorexic. Yeah, so it was, it's was. it been a long journey, but I would say, especially in the last few years, um, you know, you, you, you live this lifestyle, you do these things, and then uh, every now and then you reflect back and you think to yourself, wow, this really is not working for me. Maybe I have the body that I want, but my life, my quality of life is not any better. In fact, it's a lot worse. What am I doing wrong? So um, I would say that, you know, if, if you have an eating disorder, please 
get professional help if you can. I did not go that route. And I know that if I had, I probably would have been a lot better off. I probably would have um, seen recovery a lot faster. But and so in a lot of ways, I consider myself really fortunate to have figured this out uh, in large part on my own. Um, But I I like to say to to women in particular, and I know men suffer from this, too. If you're if you're struggling with binge eating or just feeling at struggling with finding a healthy relationship with food and your body. Um, it's very normal to feel like there's no way out. It's very normal to feel like you're trapped, like there's nothing you can do about it, that you're doomed to be like this for the rest of your life. Yeah. But uh, I've had a lot of people email me and say, it's really encouraging to see what I've been through and to see that I am now in the place that I am now where I don't stress out ever about nutrition or my body or the scale weight or any of these things. And it gives them hope that there's, uh, I guess you can say, light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Um, so if, just because you're a flexible dieter does not mean you're free of an eating disorder. Uh, just because you live, you do any kind of workout or any kind of nutrition plan does not mean that you're eating disorder free. There's always the propensity to become unhealthily obsessed with anything. And... Um, I would say just keep a pulse at all times on your quality of life. And if you find that it's deteriorating, do a gut check. What can you modify to bring that back to center, to to get balanced again? And that's something that I want everyone to always keep an eye on is quality of life. Yeah, I think it's really important to do just like regular checkups on yourself and to see, you know, am I still doing this because it makes me happy and I feel fulfilled from you know, tracking macros or just eating intuitively and going to the gym and everything. Am I still getting happiness and satisfaction from that? Or is it just kind of an obsession that I'm having and is it kind of getting out of control? Um, So, yeah, I really like what Sohi said about it. You know, you can still kind of fall into that eating disorder spectrum. But I think uh, two flexible dieting's case that it's um, a lot more manageable. And I think everybody here can agree with that. so, yeah, thank you, Sohi, for sharing that with us. I know of course. Um, that can, you know, be for some people kind of difficult to talk about. Um, but, yeah, yeah thank biggest you. Biggest takeaway point, I think, there is that whenever you do something um, in regards to your fitness, right, mm-hmm. it's supposed to help improve your quality of life. Right. When you realize that you get to a point where what you're supposed to be doing to um, make you happier is not, then that's when you know you kind of have to shift gears. Right. It should add to your life, not take away from it. And if you're trying to skip it on a vacation or not go out and see your friends because you think you have to get in every single, you're not allowed to miss a workout or you're not allowed to miss a meal. Um, that's a, those are red flags. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's shift gears a little bit again. Um, so you're a master student right yes. now. Yep. Congratulations on Thank that, you. by the way. Um, do you, let's talk about what, what's your research on if you, uh, right now, um, yeah, I can talk about it. So right now, I mean, we're in the IRB approval process. And uh, first thing I will say that is that doing research is a lot harder than you would ever think. Yeah. A lot, lot harder. So right now, I'm actually designing, I've designed a uh, dietary intervention, um, even though I'm in a psych program. So I'm comparing the macros-based approach versus habit-based uh, approach to weight loss. And, uh, you know, one group, Everything's the same with both groups. The only difference is that one group, they get prescribed certain macronutrient numbers to follow every day, um, obviously customized to the individual. Whereas the other group, the habits-based group, will be prescribed dietary habits to work on. 
Um, they check in every two weeks. We'll track weight loss, et cetera. Um, we're also tracking things like binge eating, um, emotional eating, stuff like that. So that's where the psychology aspect comes in. And so there's going to be a three-month dietary intervention. And then after that, we'll do a three-month follow-up to see, to track their weight loss maintenance. So which group was actually better at maintaining their weight loss? And that, for me, is the primary outcome measure. So we can say, okay, maybe this group is better at short-term weight loss, but this other group is more successful at maintaining that weight loss over time. And uh, my reason for comparing these two methods is that they're two really popular dieting strategies, um, especially online nowadays. And macro tracking is the past, I would say, five, six years has exploded in popularity. Habit-based coaching is rising in popularity. Um, it's not quite as popular as macro tracking, but I think um, it. I think it's a really effective way to change eating behaviors, especially in the general population. So we're going to test it out. I, to my knowledge, there's not been any um, study done comparing these two methods just yet, so this will, this will be the first. And I'm hoping to... Um, run the intervention hopefully the next month or two. So two questions for that. Um, first off, what do you think, what's your like hypothesis? What do you think is going to happen out of the research? And then um, just for me personally, and then I don't know if anybody else knows it, maybe I'm just behind, but um, what is habits-based coaching like you mentioned? Sure, okay. So my, my hypothesis is that um, macros-based the macro-based group will see better short-term results. So by the end of the three-month intervention, they'll have better weight loss results. Mm -hmm. But at the follow-up, the habits-based group will be more successful. Gotcha. Um, the reason for that is that I think um, macro-based tracking is a, I mean, it's a skill, but it's a very specific skill that you can't necessarily take with, it's not as flexible. You can't take it with you everywhere. And a lot of times when macro trackers find themselves on a vacation or a trip where they don't have a food scale, they don't know what to do. Um, they don't know how to estimate eyeball portion sizes and do those things. Whereas habits-based, it's things like, um, so example of a dietary habit is drink a tall glass of water before each meal. Um, have two cups of vegetables per day. Have two pieces of fruit per day. So there's very specific um, behavior goals that you set for yourself. And the purpose, obviously, of a habit is to do it enough times um, do it frequently enough over time such that it becomes the automatic default behavior for you to do. That's what a habit is, where you don't rely on cognitive effort. It doesn't, it's not, it becomes your default behavior um, without really even thinking about it. So um, learning to um, practice portion control, that's, that's a skill. That's a habit that you can work on. Learning to navigate a social event by uh, maybe planning beforehand how many drinks you're going to have, uh, exactly what drink, one glass, two glass, or what's your cutoff point? Those things are all habits and skills that you build over time. And the way that you get good at them is by practicing them. So yep. I think that habits-based um, eating is a much more general uh, skill set that you can apply no matter where you are, no matter what you're eating, no matter who you're with. Um, so that's what I'm thinking. hope is that over time, based on, I mean, who knows? I might be completely wrong. But my hope is that the results of this study will then encourage other researchers to do follow-up studies and, and, and look into this more. And this can then help guide practitioners, online coaches, in-person coaches, to then modify their, their practices to better serve the general population. Are you having them report whether they um, 
you said you were tracking like binge eating and right. and that kind of stuff. Right, like right. How, how are you how are you having them report there, that? Okay, so in social psychology, there are validated questionnaires and scales that we use to measure these things. So for example, for binge eating, there's a binge eating scale. To measure um, emotional eating, things like that, there's something called the three-factor eating questionnaire. So And then there's a whole scoring system, et cetera. So we just rely on those and um, add up all the points and then figure out where they are. You will use, you know, SPSS, do statistical analyses to figure out what's significant and what's not and so on. So we're not making up these questions on our, by ourselves. We have to use validated measures to do that. Awesome. So for me, it sounds like the habits-based approach to um, diet and lifestyle sounds more like a... Um, a kind of like less strict, more laxed approach to flexible dieting. And it's still flexible because, like you said, uh, have two cups of vegetables and not two cups of carrots and spinach where you're specifically sure, nailing right. down what the food is. Yep. Is that correct? Yep. And I think that macro tracking, I'm not not to say that macro tracking is bad by any means. I th yeah. think there's a time and a place for everything. Just like there's a, you know, if you know how to swim, that's great. But you you don't have to swim to your destination every time. You know, there's a time and a place for that. There's a time and a place for riding a bike. Let's let's say across campus, but you wouldn't bike across the country, for example. Or maybe you would if you really wanted to. Um, but Forrest Gump. Yeah, right. Or run. Uh, but I think that macro tracking is really good for people who are um, maybe they're prepping for a bodybuilding contest where they have to get shredded, uh, where you need that high level of precision. Um, for they're good for people who have already mastered the basic nutrition eating habits. Um, such as you know eating mostly whole foods, consuming sufficient protein, practicing portion control, stuff like that. And um, I think they're also good for people who just love numbers and love the playing with the data. And I have actually I do have a few clients who genuinely enjoy uh, tracking their macros. It's fun for them. And you know I kind of think of it as a nutritional game of Tetris. You're pl you're playing with puzzle pieces to try and get the pieces to align by the end of the day. Um, but I think that. If you don't, if you're like an average American who's never, you know, don't really know much about nutrition, uh, don't know what a proper portion size looks like, you don't know how to be in tune with your own hunger and satiety cues, then you probably would be better off starting with a habits-based approach, I think. You can make tons of progress just by saying, okay, switch from um, whole milk to reduced fat milk. Switch, maybe Nick's uh, have like one less tablespoon of half and half in your coffee. Um, instead of a glass of orange juice, have an actual orange. Those changes they seem minor, but they add up throughout the day. And especially if you have a lot of body fat to lose, that can induce a lot, a lot of change. So why would you take a giant step if you can make a ton of progress taking baby steps first? And if you're going to be a lot more successful that way too, it, it, it just makes a lot more sense to me. Absolutely. That's awesome. Such yeah, it's like point. the... Uh, it's like the minimum effective dose of training, right? Yeah, like, right. why would you do the most work when you can make a lot of progress, you know, with just little steps to begin right. with? Right. So everybody nowadays likes to call himself an entrepreneur on social media and Instagram and everything. So let's talk a little bit about um, entrepreneurship in the fitness industry okay. since you're pretty successful in, in it. Um, so walk us through kind of your business journey now. So from when you first came up with the idea for Eat, Live, Thrive and kind of how you have taken it through the different steps and kind of where it's at now. Yeah. How do you how, how have you been able to navigate this this thing called social media? Right. You so uh, so funny. Yesterday I was I saw a friend on Facebook say something about how um, being an entrepreneur entrepreneur really just means that you don't like being told what to do. 
You're like, do things on your <laughs> own. And I think about it, I'm like, actually, that is true. Because very true. <laughs> the, all the jobs that I've had growing up, um, you know, in high school and college, I would work part-time jobs, internships, et cetera. Um, I would do well. Um, but then I'd always have my ideas for how to make things better. Yes. And I try to speak up, get shut down. Try to speak up, get shut down. I get told what to do. I'd be like, eh, that doesn't really make sense. I don't want to do it. So I would never last very long at any job that I had as an employee. And um, so my senior year, um, right when I, uh, senior year of college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my career. I had just quit pre-med and I was bouncing around in different fields. I tried marketing. I tried um, journalism. I tried uh, digital film. Uh, yeah, I tried film. I tried the film industry. I tried business and um, wasn't doing, didn't really find anything that stuck with me. And uh, my second semester or my last quarter of my senior year, I just decided on a whim to start my own blog. And at the time, it was SoHealyFitness.com. And I remember I spent Christmas Day uh, staying up till 5 a.m., writing my blog, putting together my first welcome page, about me page, because I was so excited about what I was doing. And I didn't have any idea where I wanted to go with it. All I knew was that I had seen enough fitness bloggers online, right about this topic and that topic, and I knew I was a pretty decent, decent writer. And I figured, oh, well, you know what? I noticed that there aren't very many females in the industry um, speaking up about certain topics, about weightlifting, all these things. So maybe I can be one of those people. I can be one of those women. And so I started blogging and, um, you know, people started sharing my articles on cardio. And on how long did that take for people to start sharing? You know what? For me, I think it was pretty quick relative to the average person um, because there were a few key people who recognized my potential pretty quickly. Gotcha. And, um, you know, it's a combination of hard work and luck, I, it is, you have to get lucky. Being the right time at the right place, having the right people stumble across your work, that takes luck. And, but you know, obviously the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of it too, um, it, it comes down to putting yourself in those situations to get quote unquote lucky. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I was very open to meeting different people, to driving several hours to meet up with someone who I looked up yeah. to and get them just to see my face and get to know me. And, um, you know, cold calling or cold emailing, so to speak, yeah. different people and um, asking for advice, things like that. And um, I was very open minded at the time uh, to doing anything, to going anywhere. And I ended up taking uh, an internship at Cressy Performance that summer, which is a baseball facility out in um, near Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and from there, you know, I continued blogging. People continued sharing my stuff. And you... The m I think the more, especially now, the more active you are on social media, the more it can help your business, yeah. which is not to say that you need a huge following to make money. There was actually um, my first year in business. I, I think I had like 900 followers on Instagram, maybe, which nowadays is not considered very much. But I was already making six figures. And you would never know that if you just looked at my wow. social media presence. So, wow. uh, yeah, I will say that your following does not always correlate to how much money you can make. So stop, um, being, stop buying Instagram friends. Was that? Said, oh, don't Instagram do not. Um, I don't <laughs> think that anyone should ever buy their followers. I've never done that. Um, I think it's kind of sleazy. It's it's uh, deceptive. You're deceiving the public. Um, but also, it's also not hard to see who has bought their followers and who has not. If you just take a look at the ratio of likes to followers, for example. Um, but anyway, I started online coaching to backtrack a little bit. I started online coaching my senior year. 
um, just kind of for fun. I really wanted to be a little bit more independent and uh, didn't want to have to rely on tutoring random top subjects like math, SAT math, um, just to buy my own groceries. And um, I was re- I was at the point where I was ready to stop relying on um, financial help from other people. Yeah. So I kind of did that for fun. Um, I had been a client uh, with, of numerous other coaches over the past few years. So I kind of had a general idea of what to do. And, you know, over the years, I just kind of grew that, grew that. I realized I really liked it. I don't mind having to check my email, uh, you know, m- most days and get back to people in a timely manner. I really enjoy responding to check-ins and, um, you know, help coaching people to get to their goals and whatnot. So I let that grow. And then I had uh, uh, Jeff. O'Connell, uh, editor-in-chief of bodybuilding.com, found me on Twitter. He, uh, I remember, our, I don't know if he was joke, half-joking or what, but he <laughs> tweeted at me. He, he read some article of mine, tweeted at me, and said, so when are you going to start writing for us? And wow. I, yeah, it was, uh, I would say, 10 months after I started blogging. And I freaked out. I was so excited. I go, are you serious? This is a joke? That's and how I felt when I got you on the podcast. You really? <laughs> yeah, so we emailed, and I think the next day or so, we got on the phone. He said, okay, I want you to write for me. Um, here's your starting rate. What do you say? And so the next month, I started blogging for them, for writing articles for them as a paid author, and that also helped to increase my um, my audience. And, you know, I, I was following all the right people in the industry, and um, I, I remember I had interviewed Lane Norton uh, for an article I was writing on intermittent fasting. And it was not, is intermittent fasting good or bad? It was more, here's how you can, how here's how to know if it's right for you. Here are some indications, here are some contraindications. So maybe you should intermittent fast if this, this, this. Maybe not if this, this, this. And he gave me a quote, and that's how he figured out, find out who I was. And then over the next year, he followed me on Twitter, and he would see the things I would tweet, and um, every now and then he would retweet something of mine. He'd be like, oh, this girl knows what she's talking about. I agree with her. And one of the things that I know that he really liked was when I said something along the lines of, whatever you're doing right now with whatever exercise eating behavior, can you see yourself keeping that up a year from now? If not, then you need to change what you're doing. And he really liked that. And I remember the n- the next year, I heard through the grapevine that he was really overwhelmed with how much work he had on his plate and was looking for a a virtual assistant. And I was living in New York at the time, uh, working part-time as a personal trainer, but doing a little bit of stuff online too. So I just emailed him one day because I I knew he knew who I was. And I said, hey, Lane, hope you've been well. I heard that you're looking for an assistant. Um, I'm interested in filling that position. I don't need to get paid. I just want to help you out. And um, two nights later, we got on a Skype call. um, And then I he hired me on the spot and it ended up working for him for um, two and a half years as his virtual assistant. And then from there, you know, I helped be him become a lot more efficient or helped organize his business a lot. And then we started co-hosting a podcast together, Physique Science Radio. And then, you know, we became good friends that way. And just being friends with him presented with me with a ton of opportunity. And, uh, you know, I'm, it's been, I would say, almost two years since I've stopped working for him and I do everything. Everything is 100% my own business now. And at this point I've built up my online presence and online business enough to where I don't have to um, do anything in person anymore. Uh, so right now, right now I kind of, I've hit the pause button a little bit. I've scaled back a lot so I can focus on grad school, but uh, it is only a two year program. So next May I'll be graduating and then I should be fine. But um, really my, I guess my entre- entrepreneurial journey has been a lot of 
trying out different things, um, nixing what didn't work, modifying what did work to make it better. And I was always stayed very open-minded to making improvements, to listening to feedback from clients and customers about what they wanted and what they didn't want. And um, the cool thing about having your own business is that you can offer any service that you want to offer and not offer any service that you don't want to offer. So for me, for example, um, with my clients, I do not like having phone consults. I do not like them. I, I get anxiety. I'm, I'm very much an introvert. I get anxiety. I like having the whole day open to work on my projects at my own pace, at my own leisure. Um, so I just don't offer those things. And I'm very clear about that. If you want someone who does phone consults, you can find another coach. Um, but here are the services that I do offer. And uh, for me to have that kind of autonomy over how I spend my time and how I make my money is really freeing. And, um, you know, I know there's a lot of risk involved with being an entrepreneur and every month you make a different amount of money. It's always fluctuating, but it's also cool for me knowing that, okay, if I really wanted to next week, I could launch a new product with whatever I want and people will buy it because at this point I've built up enough credibility and trust in my audience that they, if I, if I offer something, if I promote something, they know that I'm not bullshitting them. They know that I'm a legit, it's a legitimate product. So that's pretty cool too. And to, to, to watch, you know, kind of steer your own path however you want. And that's a lot of freedom that I love having that I will say that not everyone likes. Um, yeah. Some people, you know, are better as employees working for other people. Some people are not so great at being entrepreneurs and that's all fine. But um, you don't know unless you try. Yeah, one thing that I really like that you said is that you're an introverted person because I think a lot of people have yeah. this misconception that you have to be extroverted no, uh, in order to be a successful entrepreneur, which I'm a pretty introverted person myself and I am trying to start uh, my own company and everything. So it's encouraging for me personally to yeah. hear um, introverted people becoming yeah. entrepreneurs. Yeah, and, and the biggest difference like I make there, I think, is that even though you are you said you were introverted, you 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 still put yourself out there. Still hustle. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to professional things, I have almost no fear. I will fly across the country. I'll fly across the world to speak at an event if I could. Yeah. I have to meet people. I will do anything. Um, but, you know, it just means I'm very selective with how I spend my time and who I spend it with. So if I, let's say, um, probably after this recording this, I'll be drained for the rest of the day. That's fine. I know how it is. I've, I've known I'm an introvert for a long time, but I also know what I need to do re to recharge. And for me to sit at my laptop for most of the day and respond to emails and do things online, that for me rejuvenates me. It does not drain me one bit. I love it. Um, but for me to be around people all day long, that's what's hard for me. So, you know, just as a side note, a lot of people think that introverts are shy and everything. That's not necessarily the case. All it means is that um, you need to spend time alone to recharge your batteries. That's a good way of saying that. I yeah. like that. I never yeah. thought about I love that. my alone time. <laughs> and being an <laughs> entrepreneur as an online coach, you get tons of alone time. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So we're coming up on time, so I'm going to wrap this up a little bit. Sure. Um, I did want to ask, uh, for people that are starting out their own fitness journeys and things like that, and people that uh, are just trying to lose weight or build muscle, things like that, yeah. what are some quick little... Uh, takeaways and yeah just for okay. everybody these aren't these aren't um you know uh gospel things to live by 100 percent. it's just quick little tips um it's all going to come down to you putting in the work and putting in the time and especially just educating yourself but i know so he has a lot of very valuable information so let's listen to what she has to say sure so i like first of all that you combine the two into one because there are a lot of parallels and the biggest thing i will say is that everything is a learning opportunity there's no 
Well, I guess you can think of some things as failures, like, oh, well, this didn't work. But there's always something you can learn from everything. And Absolutely. I will, I say that if you're always successful, you don't learn anything from that. You learn from making mistakes. Yes. With nutrition and with your diet, with, uh, with business, there are so many things uh, with my career that I've tried that has not worked that told me um, that, oh, okay, this is, this is not the way to do it. Let's try something else. And I, looking back, you know, you realize... I stayed very, very open-minded to making mistakes, to changing anything at a moment's notice if I needed to. If it wasn't working, I ditch it. If it's working well, I keep doing more of it. You know, there are different services that I've tried to offer in the past um, that flopped. I've tried. I tried to sell apparel through the certain website that was a horrible idea, and you just you ditch it. Okay, whatever, move on. You know, not to do that in the future. And seeing, uh, it's it's. Uh, in, Carol Dweck is a, is a she's a psychologist at Stanford. Does a lot of research on uh, mindset, and she wrote a book, talks about fixed mindset versus growth mindset. If you adopt a growth mindset where you see everything as a challenge, a positive challenge, to an opportunity to rise to the occasion, to learn, to improve upon yourself. Um, let's say you get a you get you get a math test, you you do you get like a seventy five percent. Instead of being discouraged and seeing that as proof that you're just not meant to do math, you can say okay. What can I do next time to get an A on the next test? What did I get wrong? How can I brush up on those skills? So you, it, it, it motivates you to work even harder, to try harder. Whereas if someone with fixed mindset would say, well, that just means I wasn't meant to do math and you'll avoid it and you'll won't, you, you won't try because you don't, want to, you, you don't want the feedback. You don't want to know that you've um, quote unquote failed at something. So Take if you- Take the easy way out. Yeah. Right, so if, so if you uh, approach everything with an open mind, see everything as an opportunity to learn and get better and also stay consistent, um, you know, with nutrition, with dieting, with, with people in the industry that I've seen come and go over the years. The people who see success are the ones who are consistent. They are consistent with their content creation. They're always, uh, you always see them on social media. Um, they're always on your radar because their name is popping up everywhere. And they, they stay relevant. They, they keep up with the research, ideally. Um, they are, you know, continuing to work with, their, with clients and put out quality information to their audience. They're the ones over time you see steadily um, gaining popularity and seeing success. So uh, it's really easy with dieting, with fitness, with, with career stuff to be really, really gung-ho in the beginning and to want to go all out, to be extreme. It's harder to keep that, Enthusiasm going year after year after year after year. Um, so easy to putter out after a few months or one year or two years. Um, because a lot of people don't anticipate the challenges that they face along the way. They don't realize that it's not supposed to be fun the whole all the time. But if this is what you truly want to do, if you're truly committed to the process, then uh, you'll tough it out through the not so fun times, through tax season, through you know doing the boring paperwork, all that stuff. Um, through hiring and firing assistants who end up you know, not being a good fit for you and having to have those difficult conversations. Not everything's fun, but if you remember why you're doing this in the first place, uh, why you're committing to a healthy lifestyle, why you want to commit to making a positive difference um, in the world as a fitness professional or, or whatever it is, then that can encourage you to um, learn something from the bad days and, uh, you know, keep working and eventually you'll have more and more good days. You'll see more success. You'll get more opportunities to speak at different events, to help more people, to maybe launch a product with someone, to collaborate with someone you've been looking up to for some time. Those are opportunities that only come if you continue to work hard. 
um, and show up and be consistent. And um, I know it sounds so cliche, but just don't give up. I mean, that's really what it all comes down to. So it's, yeah, it's kind of cliche, but it's really the thing you need to keep doing. Yeah. Uh, so Healy, where can people find you sure. on the interwebs? So everything online right now is under the name So He Fit. So you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, also he fit. My website is sohefit.com. If you need to uh, contact me privately, you can um, fill out the contact form on my website. And um, that's how I found her, and she responded real quick. Yeah, so right. Really nice. Right. And then uh, if you're interested in buying my book, you can uh, search Eat, Live, Thrive on Amazon. It launches um, June 28th, but you can pre order it now through there. So it's going to be a hard copy book through Human Kinetics. Oh, so um, one last question is: yeah. I have um, I actually purchased a copy of your um, your first book, which was the uh, Beginner's Guide to Mac- Macros. Yes. That's one of my my first intros um, uh, into really? tracking and flexible cool. dieting. Yeah. yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, How is is Eat, Lift, Thrive um, along along those um, lines, or it's something? It's different? very different. It's a different, and it's a lot more comprehensive. It con- covers the. So I like to say it's about learning to master your unique mindset, nutrition, and training journey for lifelong results. So it does not go into how to track macros. It does not go into how to weigh your food. Um, It goes into uh, just basic, um, here are the macronutrients. Here are some eating behaviors you can work on. Here's how you can eat. It's more more about eating and learning how to eat intuitively, how to listen to your hunger cues, stuff like that, how to make adjustments along the way, um, how to write your own training program. And here are a bunch of sample training programs for you to um, start off on your journeys with. Here's how to gauge your own uh, fitness progress. How to, here's how to take measurements. Here's how, you, here's how you can modify your program over time. Here are the mindset traps you should be aware of, et cetera, et cetera. So it's pretty much my entire uh, philosophy, so to speak, uh, with fitness. It's how I train my clients. It's how I train myself. It's how I recommend, hopefully, everyone approach their own journeys and um, I think that you have to master your mindset first before anything can come into place. Anything lasting can fall into place. So if you've mastered your mindset, then everything else is a cakewalk. So that's what it's about. And um, it's it's pretty much like learning how to become your own coach, independent coach. Awesome. Well, Sohi Lee, thank you so much for all your time. I think we hold the title now of best first guest on the <laughs> podcast ever. We definitely do. So, yeah, absolutely. So uh, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Um, you can find me on Instagram as Mikey Ernesto J. You can find me as agent underscore Schroth. That's S-C-H-R-O-T-H. Um, we will catch you guys the next time. <laughs> Look forward to more episodes with more awesome guests, although I don't know how we're going to top this one, Mike. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Well, maybe we'll just bring it back the second time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Sohi. One last thing. Um, Check out my personal blog, agora10.com. Thanks, everybody.